The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So it's been many months since coming here and seeing many familiar faces and new faces. So thank you for inviting me again. And may a few words of the Dhamma or what may touch your life, touch your heart and your personal experiences, what may alleviate some of the discomfort in your life. Yes, if the thought brings any of this, then it is certainly worthwhile we are all here together. It is actually not so easy uh, as I am learning as I'm getting older to be able to travel as far. I've actually quite going to talk a little bit about today being Easter, but I'll just touch on this point, which I'll touch on again. It's quite miraculous. I can even sit here with my legs crossed. <laughs> it's only in the last few weeks I've been actually able to sit on a cushion with my legs crossed um, after having an operation and then quite a serious back injury. So thankfully I could get in my car and come and sit here and share a few words with you today. So we're sitting here uh, on a very special day for a large percentage of the world. <laughs> yeah, the Jesus story of his death and re resurrection on Easter Sunday is an interesting uh, I won't talk so much on this, but it is a very interesting thing to reflect on from a Buddhist perspective. Of course, the rebirth or the resurrection of Jesus is different to the Buddhist perspective. However, if we look at it from probably an enlightened perspective, you know, and I'm not saying in any way <laughs> I, have the, I have the privilege to offer that perspective to you, but from a perspective where every moment is a rebirth, the appearance appears the same, you see me, I look the same, but in the next moment everything has changed actually. What comes out of my mouth, what comes out of my eyes or my ears, what comes into my ears, is not the same as it was a moment ago. And this is a sort of rebirthing moment to moment. But it is also about uh, miracles, really, from the Christian perspective. Uh, the Buddha to pass away in the way he did and then to be awake and alive shortly afterwards in the story, in the, 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 the historical story of, of his uh, life. It is a sort of what we would say miracle. Not that people who have died haven't come back um, and there is a difference between a clinical death and an actual death. 
from a Buddhist perspective. Many have had a, been clinically dead and returned to, to life, even babies. And there's a lot of stories of this. But on the perspective of miracles, and Buddhism has, has many of them, every tradition will tell us of great sages and what they have done and how they appear in two or three places at one moment. Or <laughs> and Jesus, of course, with his capacity to supposedly walk on water and feed many from a loaf of bread. I mean, I have seen in my own life, and for those of you who have not, we have not met before, I lived many years 20 years in South Korean monasteries where I ordained. And every tradition where you have, uh, you cultivate a practice of, um, in that culture, of purification through bowing and through prayer, and, uh, and many hours of this, and, and through meditation, then you... Your, the refinement of your body and mind is such that you don't see the world in that very humanly way, ordinary way. You see it from a very refined, a very purified mind. And what you experience in that realm is not what we may experience in our everyday life. But for Jesus to be reborn in in this very short period of time, or resurrected into life, is what has kept that tradition alive and growing. Uh, much of his story was pivoted on that particular point that developed the faith in that the people of that religion. You know, in the world, only... 7% of the world's population are Buddhist, and yet 40% are Christian. It's uh, how it has survived and grown in this thousand years since the Buddha, uh, since uh, Jesus was here. But the core tenets of developing the virtues and many of the practices are very similar. We could even say, and it has been suggested, that Jesus may have even been uh, to parts of India or in that region, because all of that region was Buddhist right up until, you know, the third century or so, um, to have met Buddhists and studied with them. There's a long period where his teaching he is not seen and there's no teaching from him. So I think it is very important on such days as, uh, as Easter Sunday and Christmas that we reflect. We would say in, in Mahayana Buddhism, he was a great bodhisattva. He was a great enlightened spiritual leader who still inspires many cultures, many people. So... As, as practicing Buddhist, we can also learn and reflect on his life, particularly in the way of his great compassion and love. And so for today, you know, hold that, 
hold that thought and reflect on his life and uh, how it inspires you too. Those qualities, those um, those enlightened aspects of his life that uh, we all are aspiring to attain to. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I thought I would just share a few words on the wonderful virtues of this great teacher. One very one interesting little point when I was coming here and I was reflecting on this um, this point about, you know, the resurrection or rebirth. <laughs> I was coming up to red lights and everyone's sitting at the red lights. And just at the moment I'm thinking of it, the lights turned off. <laughs> they went black. And I'm, I'm coming up to the traffic. And for this very short moment, the traffic didn't know what to do. It, they didn't know whether they should go forward or stop. So we were all in this pause. I'd slowed down in this pause. The traffic in front of me had paused. And this pause is so important. It's important in our meditation. It's important in our communication. And so I thought, that's the miracle of today. (laughs) That's my little miracle. My mind for a moment stopped in its expected (laughs) trajectory of, you know, seeing the green light. Not that it thought about the green light. It just thought, oh, no light. In the Dhammapada... There is this verse, it says, better than a thousand useless words or a thousand useless thoughts. On hearing one useful word and attain peace is really the point, you know. So better than a thousand useless words on hearing one word, one useful word, one attains peace. And many in old traditions, sometimes it's a word, sometimes it's a sound. You know, people who practice meditation using the one word butho in the Theravadan tradition. At some point, that butho, maybe in the ho, maybe in the put, there is a sudden stillness arises in their mind. And in that stillness, for a short time, you wake up. In, in the Zen and our tradition, my tradition, it may be a word like cuts, something that cuts through, or this. You know, the teacher may put something in front of you and say this, and there's nowhere to go. The mind just stops in that moment with a thisness. Katsu is just a sound. It's just a, like a big ah sound to, just to stop you in that moment. So such words are really um, important words or experiences like the light going out. Then he says better than 
reciting a hundred mean, uh, meaningless verses just to recite, recite one line of a verse that brings you peace. Again is the point. Just to recite one line of the Dhamma and attain that peaceful mind. I took a, a line here from, and I'll touch on this, um, Chan Monk's poetry and verses a little bit today throughout my talk. But his one line here is to withdraw from the pounding thoughts and the weaving of your ingrained ideas. Just for a moment, withdraw from your pounding thoughts and the weaving of your ingrained ideas. Our habitual, <laughs> our habitual thinking that becomes what I think is right. I've thought it yesterday, the day before, everyone around me agrees with that. The people I like agree with that. And we start to believe it. But then at some point when we start to discover and study the Dhamma, we know this is not true. Or we meet a teacher and they can slice through that so quickly. Again, we pause just on hearing one sentence. This uh, master's practice was the same as the practice I did, which is turning the light back in, turning that thought in, and turning it back to where it comes from, stepping back into that moment, away from all the projections and cravings and ideas and things we want, we turn back into where that comes from and reflect. Later, he talks about reflection. At the very end, I'll touch on this. And then better than a thousand useless verses, on hearing one useful verse, one attains peace. Defiled or immaculate, Increasing or decreasing, these concepts only exist in your mind. The reality of connection or interconnection is unsurpassed. This is actually a verse by Thich Nhat Hanh, and it's a verse that's written on a toilet wall. We used to have a, a Christian nun's verse on our toilet wall. <laughs> <laughs> a long verse of what not to do as a nun. <laughs> it was very interesting because in Asia, the toilets, you have squats, you know, just a slit in the... <laughs> and when you're squatting and you're, you're reading this verse, we read it every time we went to the toilet, 17th century nun's verse on how to be a virtuous nun. And it was so strong. It really, really cut through our daily ignorance and arrogance. And uh, I can't even recite a word of it. I might have to go and find it again. After all those years, I quickly dismissed it out of my mind when I was no longer going and sitting on those squats. <laughs> but here, defiled or immaculate, pure or impure, 
increasing or decreasing. These concepts exist only in my mind. The reality of interconnection is unsurpassed. So when you become completely integrated, your mind is completely one in the enlightened sense of oneness, full, fullness, then you realize how we create out of our desires and so forth things for gain, for praise, for selfish interests, things coming and they're fading away. But we usually see them coming and coming and coming and coming in our mind. We're always on this gaining, aren't we? We rarely see it fading away. We might catch the thoughts coming, but do we catch them fading away? Do we catch our grasping, our meanness fading away? No. So often, you know, we are wanting to grow everything around us and we're the center of it. That's so interesting because it's very short-lasting, actually. Because <laughs> we change, that center changes. The people around us change. Even monasteries are impermanent. We had, as we saw, with Bright Moon... With the depth, with the depth clear, so when the mind is deeply clear, utterly silent, thoroughly illuminating the source, sorry, thoroughly illuminating the source, empty and spirited, vast and bright, then you must take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where that light issued forth. I read this and I thought, what inspired me on my path to become a nun, or the practice that took me on that path, had I read this or known this at that time, I think I would be a little more awake than I am now. <laughs> it inspired me to become a nun and wonderful and move forward in this path. But sometimes when you practice and have very deep experience and insight, you need the guidance of a good teacher to actually take you that one step back from the viewer from the observer, from the knowing, to the source. In the teachings, it says, if your mind is empty, it is always ready for so many possibilities. That's a wonderful place when we can relinquish to the point where we're actually, and we do in meditation, we, we know it because that's why we come back and do retreats. 
when we come out of the retreat, the world seems so full of new potential and possibilities. You feel so alive, so renewed, so refreshed. But a deluded mind with self-serving intention seeks and gains knowledge for its own path. And it can destroy our innate goodness. So what if we do, if we do it for our own gain, selfish gain, we create a them and an us, a this and a that. And as soon as we create a them, that dual starts to be in disharmony. Very, very tricky for a community if we cannot work in some sort of balance and harmony. I was telling someone yesterday, two times I got trapped in this major dilemma with committee, community, and two times I made, maybe even three times, but two times I made impulsive, um, unproductive decisions by going along with the general consensus of the populace community at the time. And the interesting thing is, both of those times, that community vanished as soon as I went along with their agreement. And it made me move from a very, a gift of the gods, you might say, a very good property and a very good location to serve the Korean community at the time who wanted me somewhere closer to the city. And I said, well, you find a better property that would serve you and your monk and your needs, and I'll consider it. But that was me thinking of, well, the bigger community, the bigger gain, but not holding on to my intuition, my, my deep understanding of why I came out and what I was going to do. I mean, as karma has it, you know, if you have good intentions and you stay in robes and you lead an, an honest life, whatever happens is just in the flow of like a river, <laughs> in the flow of where the bend is taking you. But I reflected on this, how I was too immature and not strong enough to hold my center as a monastic. And as the person who had raised the funds and had an intention to come. And again, as committees came and went over the years, I found myself slowly learning to listen, to work with, to remain firm where it's necessary to be firm, to educate or 
impart my deeper reasoning where necessary to impart rather than excessively dominate. And an interesting thing I discovered in this time that it's often quite new people who come to the Dhamma who are very skilled, who have a lot to offer a center, who can see, oh, you know, we could do it this way. If that were a case in a large monastery, in a career or in a, anywhere in the world, you know, it wouldn't happen. But when we have small communities, small, fewer people wanting to be, to support or to be part of that core working, functioning community, it can very easily be uh, friends, people who agree with me people who fit in with my view, or a group who fit in. The Buddha talked about this, you know. There were monks who had very different views as groups, large bodies of them, who thought differently or at times to the Buddha or in the way that he wanted to um, have the monks live by Vinaya. They wanted to live differently. They wanted to practice differently. And over the history of Buddhism, this is how it's established and how it's moved and how it's grown. So the Buddha was never overly strong. He called it a crack. And there were many, you know, there were two of this side and three on that side and another person, maybe the influencing balance somehow. So when they had debates or when they had a discussion that was lopsided or wasn't working, it was called a crack. And there were many levels of these cracks. It was only, I think, a monks or a monk who could actually break some, some ruling, and usually it was the Buddha. But the way they would work through it, he said, well, don't try to resolve it too quickly. You try to resolve an issue too quickly, then you may actually not have the right insight to be able to resolve the issues that would stand a long time, stand firm for a longer time. So you go slowly. You communicate together. Those who are younger in the Dhamma, they have many other strengths, so you don't want to lose these people. They attract new people. At the same time, those who have been the support, the foundation, the workers, over many years, you don't want to lose these people either. In Victoria, we have many temples, many places people can go. So you, what you're wanting to do is find that balance. You don't want to have a committee that's very stacked on one side. That won't work. After a year or so, the inexperience will mean it will crack. And you don't want to lose the people who contribute greatly in supporting, especially the monks 
and people who come to this temple. So go slowly. If in any way we are seeking for undeserved reputation, yet we're seeking for reputation rather than Dhamma, we're seeking for position and power rather than insight and wisdom and compassion. If any way we are seeking undeserved reputation, precedence or popularity, authority over the laity or other monastic, the Buddha spoke to them as those who are not yet established on the path. To be established on the path, which is I'm going to talk about, is to develop tolerance harmony, equanimity, and empathy. These are very important. Tolerance and harmony. The Buddha said, if a layman or monk think this should be done in whatever endeavor, great or small, wanting others to agree and follow them, such, he said, is an ambitious fool the ambitions of a fool. Here desire and pride increase. The quest for worldly gain, desire and pride increase the request, sorry, the quest for worldly gain and fame or popularity. It is not the path to awakening. We must always hold our intention to come, our intention to practice is to awaken. This was very strong for me in Korea. Everyone at that temple, whether they were strong or weak physically, whether they'd been there for a short time or decades, were there to awaken. And that was because That's what was instilled from the top down, from the order. That was what was expected. Of course, now there are less great masters. So we were all young and we were all, you know, all struck, (laughs) you might say. (laughs) We were very inspired by very lofty ideals and did sometimes reckless things to get there quickly. I mean, I did very reckless things. You think that if you can just develop these powers, you can just develop, you know, that strength to meditate for days, not go to sleep, you know, you'll get there more quickly. (laughs) I learned as I went along, this is not necessarily the case and very rarely is it. But, you know, we would, we would still try these things. A child is born with wonder and a certain tolerance of people. You know, children are very tolerant. They don't look at that person and say, you're a bad person and you're <laughs> or you're a good person, you give me lollies. Maybe on that level, yes. But they're quite tolerant of people's differences. You know, cultural differences. A children doesn't go up and say, oh, you're black. 
Why are you black? You know, they don't see that factor straight off, you know. It takes a little bit of education to do that. So they don't look at the skin colour, ethnicity. You know, children play with anyone, anyone who wants to come and play the game. They're, they're very happy. But we learn to distrust. We learn to be fearful. It is a learned trait. And for very good reasons. It is, of course, it is um, within our system, <laughs> our reptilian system, to, to have fear as part of what it is to be human for safety. And children learn if they put something on their tongue and it's sweet or it's bitter, they don't take it if it's bitter. So they know, innately know. But we can quite early on learn to be tolerant to live in harmony with one another. If we can continue this, you know, acceptance of others. And many children for many cultures do. But often, in having to assimilate, they lose interest in their religious education and cultural roots. When children go to, and this happened with the Korean children, when they go to schools, that are uh, run by Catholic or other Christian orders, they tend to wander from their, their Buddhist tradition because they're very influenced. Not that they become Christian, but they sometimes lose an interest in religion. It is argued that tolerance doesn't just make peaceful coexistence between people actually enriches the society. Because tolerance is necessary for a society to live in peace. So if we're tolerant, we develop tolerance as a, as a really foundation of one of our qualities and our character, then we have a great capacity to um, develop harmony. Divisions bring a lack of trust, often between generations, so a lack of good communication, a lack of listening to those with more experience, or bigoted viewpoints, or even for younger, a lack of experience and simplistic viewpoints um, on how to work together may sever the capacity for harmony. So I want to speak on five points that can help make this situation um, work a little bit better. I'm not a Theravada Buddhist, but um, I did have roots in early Theravada, so I'm not going to be, as you might say, linguistic enough to teach <laughs> Theravada Dhamma <laughs> as the Venerable next to me. But I think you have a lot of wonderful teachers coming every month, so... You will learn a lot of Dharma from them all. But as I have been asked to talk, uh, I want to just touch a little bit more on the... Because um, we don't have a lot of time, and I have a lot of notes here, as I always do. <laughs> um, I touched on the, that point. So I just want to touch a little bit more on accepting of differences. 
So important. Accepting is the ability to see that other people have a right to their own views. We all have a right. We have experiences. We learn in different ways. We think in different ways. We have cultural views, social views, aged, mature views or immature views, you know. So, but we have the right to those views. That's what it is to be in this, the fortunate thing is to live in this country we live in where we can express them. We don't all agree. And we don't have to agree with the values um, or acceptance doesn't necessarily make our own views less valid. So accepting another view doesn't mean our own view isn't valid. It's essential as Buddhist in being tolerant and open-minded towards beliefs and the lifestyle of others in order for the world and our community and our family to live in a more harmonious space, a safer space, you know. Harmony means we bring together so many things. We've all come from somewhere else today into this room. This room is holding us. And the Dharma is holding us in a safe space where whether you agree with what I'm saying or not, whether it's totally boring, boring and you came wanting to hear something else and I'm spouting on about things that are not interesting you, still the space holds it. Mm. So there was a great teacher called Huan Yudesa in the 7th century in Korea and he developed something that has become a core principle of Korean Buddhism, harmonization, synchronization, harmonization. It became so, he was a scholar of many traditions. In the 7th century, Buddhism was coming from India and from all over the world. And he had absorbed teachings from all these traditions. And he didn't compare. He would take the essential core great quality of that teaching and he would see how it worked with central core great qualities of other teachings. And it became at that time too, or a bit earlier, but around that time it was the unification of three um, provinces or dynasties of Korea, Seela, Bekche and Kogryo. So these three uh, uh, countries almost within the, in Korea, they had very different, some had developed with Buddhism and others were still um, much more in their pre-Buddhist cultures. But he brought them together. And no, his ideas were influenced by the coming together of these three cultures and all the teachings he had learned. He was a monk, but he, he returned to lay life, and he went all over the country, he, just teaching to the ordinary people, predominantly. He taught kings and queens and, and Buddhist scholars because he was such a good teacher, but he taught lay people. He thought it is so important that the people understand what the Buddhist teaching is. So his influence, even to this day, great scholars still study his his philosophy on harmonization. Yeah. What year is 
So he was 7th century, 600s, early 600s to late 600s he lived. Yep. Uh, very interesting. I've studied a couple of his texts, but um, and I've been to places he had lived, uh, but he was a very unique um, cultural influence, you might say, of Buddhism in Korea. And it, this approach became the foundational approach of all Korean temples and monastics. And just on empathy and compassion, well, we have talked about this many times. Empathy is simply the ability to be with the suffering of others, the pain and suffering of others. And it is um, a foundation for acting ethically for better relationships. So when we are empathetic with others, we can sense what it is we need to share to make their discomfort more at ease. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get so proud, so self-confident and self-centered, we can't feel others, you know. Our society sometimes demands that in the workplace. So we're so goal-driven, we're so focused on what we want that we're not empathizing with other views, other ways, other thoughts, other people's feelings. To, to think that a Buddhist would attack another Buddhist here is very hard for me to imagine. But these things happen. So we grow tolerance we grow harmony and even empathy to some degree through education. The Buddhist teaching or educating us how to develop these qualities in ourselves and in relation to other. And the BCV, with all the various teachings and teachers who come, you're always learning. You know, you, you, we would have a Dhamma talk once a month. That was it. Once a month, we studied. We studied textual with, with a sutra teacher. But a Dharma talk was once a month. So we didn't get too attached. And then it was so abstract, you know. It was so Zen master Dharma talks, you know, you have actually to awaken to them to understand them. I can understand them a little bit more now, I think, as I've matured and read more and, and have more insight but, you know, we would sit there nodding. Our once a month, great opportunity to listen to the Dharma with the master in front and half the room's like this, you know. <laughs> we had the great fortune as foreigners to go and sit with the master and discuss the talks. So that was really great. So I just want to very quickly, for the next five minutes, um, just touch on, because you do the, the five, your five vows every day, every, every time you come here, for many of you, every day, you, in your prayers, you know, you repeat taking the precepts, the five precepts. And I wanted to share the, the Zen lay approach to precepts. It's quite interesting. Just some things here. And it differs to Christianity. You know, Christianity, the seven, va the seven um, vows, there were really, um, they didn't have very much about how to behave with your speech. You know, there was poverty and chastity and, you know, tolerance and these things there. 
very similar that we have, you know, patience and so forth within our, our virtues, many very similar things. And they have seven, but it didn't go into the aspects of speech as much as they deliver here. So it says, recognizing we are not separate. This is in non-killing. Recognizing we are not separate from all living beings, we practice non-killing. To develop compassion for ourselves and others, we intentionally bring no harm to our or others' precious life. And we encourage others to do so By abstaining from taking life, we value the precious life we have and endeavor to live in harmony with all living things. Well, all things, I would say, living and innate. That's why we make gardens, sculptures and so forth. And we protect the environment and act for the sustain, its sustainable living. Being content and satisfied with what we have, this is the practice of non-stealing. Not taking anything uh, that's not freely given and asking for what we want and accepting what is offered. My teacher used to accept anything offered anything. Somebody would come in a little tin of sardines or something. And, oh, you know, he didn't touch any meat or fish or anything. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful gift. The next person would come in to see him and want to talk about some problem. And he'd say, oh, I've got a lovely gift for you. And out would come the sardines, you know, <laughs> because they would never see these things, you know, at that time. So it was always a matter of receiving and sharing, you know. Learning to listen more deeply and responding naturally with more gentle truthfulness and constructive speech. This is the practice of non-lying. With the purpose of not deceiving yourselves and others. We meditate to cultivate the mind that sees clearly. This is the practice of not being deluded as to experience life through the lens of honesty, clarity, and in direct response and relationship to what is unfolding. Realizing through, and when I'm number six now, so realizing through the benefits of practicing and growing loving kindness, we don't engage in others' misdeeds and faults. We don't engage in gossiping about others' misdeeds and faults. So that is it. We don't engage in others' misdeeds and fault. That's the precept. Kind thoughts grow, kind speech. Kind speech grows, caring and fearless character. Not slandering, we can see more deeply into the causes of suffering from poor speech, incorrect and dishonest speech. If we stop competing with or expecting recognition and this is the precept, it is not elevating our, ourselves to belittle others. So these are the extra five that they put on the lay people. Rather than blaming, criticizing or judging others, allowing others their vows for inclusiveness to grow. I think the priests, the lay priests also have these vows. Monastic have others. 
So not elevating ourselves and belittling others. Growing generosity through the wisdom and relinquishing is the practice of not being stingy. Going beyond a small, selfish, stingy sense of impoverished self, using all my skills and good fortune to benefit others. So we use what we have. It may not be material things. It may be a kind word. It may be a capacity to do something for a neighbor. We use what we can and what we're able. Through acts of loving kindness and understanding, we develop the practice not to be angry. Not by harboring anger, ill will, resentment, rage or revenge, we can transform the suffering into wisdom bring negative experiences as they rise into our own practice. Honoring and reflecting on the benefits of the triple gem in our lives, we do not think or speak ill of the three refuges of any tradition. However, they, they're the same, but, you know, however they practice these. Respecting this precious opportunity to meet with the Buddha Dharma and meet enlightened teachers to awaken us through our lives and to practice and to for our practice to liberate others. So we practice through not speaking ill of the three refugees, but taking the refugees and reflecting on them in a good hearted way. Then we have the opportunity to meet great teachers. We have an opportunity to be in this room. You know, who's not in this room? The world. Eating Easter eggs is not in this room, you know. Maybe your friends who normally come aren't in this room either. That says something too. So very important. And our lives and practice can liberate others. So Honji's, so going back to that great master, I finish with this poem. Honji's final words. The empty wind in the trees and the moon reflected in the water, responds outwardly without getting confused. So the way we speak, you know, the moon in the water is not the moon, it's just a reflection. The way we reflect our lives and the world, we're just responding to what's arising, but it doesn't confuse us. If it's clear like the wind that goes through the forest. It's nothing substantial. It's nothing permanent. It's just flowing through, just like light that flows through the forest. And the moon that reflects in the water, we respond outwardly, but we don't get confused. Live in clear harmony without a wandering mind, not sticking anywhere, in a mind like space, with a spacious mind, there's no end. There's nowhere to get caught, nowhere to get stuck. We just have a mind that stays open. And we can wander freely in that space, learn many things. And serenity is the final word of all the teachings Reflection is the response to all manifestations. The fact we can reflect, the fact I can see, 
and speak to something that can hear or someone that can hear is just a natural response to whatever rises in my life. And this teacher's wonderful, he was a very eloquent poet, his wonderful teacher, teachings is read by uh, Samanira Jasara. No, Jayasara, Jayasara. So many of you may know of her and her teachings. This wonderful teaching is there. It's a beautiful poem, so I recommend it. So Master Hongji, if you write in Hongji, H-O-N-J-H-I, you'll come up with it, or you might see it anyway, because it has that serenity is the final word, is the name of that topic. So thank you for being patient. Is there any quick questions? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, uh, Venerable Chi Kwan. Uh, my question is very quick. I think basically people believe if they follow the, the five precepts, they're, they're Buddhists, uh, yeah. you know, they, they may need to refine things. From my, what I pick up from your talk is that there are subtleties there about things like intolerance or uh, making change that results in dis um, discord, yeah. Mm. Di uh, di uh, disharmony. Disharmony. Mm. That really, in a sense, even though it's not a, a brutal breaking of one of the precepts, mm. is still a form a, of breaking a the precept. It's a crack. It is a crack. And the cracks can be a little fine hair crack and it can become something you have to patch. Um, but as I said and as the Buddha suggested, and it is worth reading, you know, this in, in the Buddhist text about, you know, conflict resolution and so forth, you know, about how to deal with issues. Um, and that's very, you know, he's always very lucid. Um, I think sometimes we turn, we tend to learn the Dharma a little bit in a way of, um, rather than a real deep reflection in our life, we, it sounded good, it sounds good, and we have studied it with many teachers and it does inspire us on a day-to-day -day basis. But there are certain things in it that we have attached to and not actually um, brought into practice. Maybe, maybe because we, we learn to, it's like when we learn to recite in Korea, the Dhamma, we learn it off by rote. It doesn't mean it changes in the way we behave and think and speak. And I read that out deliberately, those extra, it's a mixture of that, that in my own textual writing, except, you know, they're the tenants. So the, the Buddhist peacemakers plus the, um, the precepts of the Zen schools. So I just put it a bit in my own language there, but it is the same precepts, the same tenets, the same meaning. So, you know, by looking at that, we can actually develop an understand, deeper understanding through those nuances of, you know, what it is to speak in a way that... And, I mean, I'm, I'm at fault of this. You know, I can speak... Anyone who knows me knows I can be, at times, a little bit 
either harsh or too direct. You know, sometimes it's, I can be overly direct and be like a big sort of stomping, you know, monster on people at times, you know, because I, I've learned or experienced or, you know, believe I understand it in a more mature way. But I don't always get it right in the audience I'm communicating with, the person I'm communicating with. So uh, a mature person, it'll make them think. A, a new de- per- person to Dharma, I have to be, I'm very careful now. I don't, how I communicate things that I don't directly point out their faults rather than, you know, yeah. Yes, hello, Cora. Mm. Uh, um, as including being, I can't remember the exact words, but the, the goal of speech is to be inclusive, mm. not exclusive. That's right. Uh, uh, and there's quite, really within the suttas there's quite a lot a said, lot that, yeah. but we tend to perhaps um, not reflect on that sufficiently because you know one of the things too is in your daily life as lay people your world you you go to work you're in a world where you're surrounded by people who think very differently to you and the language and communication that surrounds you from your children from your neighbors from your friends is not dharma language usually unless they're quite cultivated people. And you'll find with cultivated people of any religion or background, they actually have a great capacity and eloquence in communication. You know, people who are lawyers or people who have to, you know, deal with language, uh, they are very skilled, you know, if they are Buddhist and, and that with that inclination even more so, because they would take the Buddha Dharma to develop that, yeah. So, uh, Okay, well, I think it's come to an end for today, but thank you for staying with me, and I hope that some things of today will be of great benefit for you. And I wish you the rest of this weekend, the Easter weekend, to be a, a nice break and also uh, hopefully the wind, weather. I'm, I can't promise the weather's going to be any better. <laughs> King Lake was five or six degrees this morning. <laughs> Just as well, my home was warm, but took a little while in the car. Anyway, I wish you well until we meet again. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.